Welcome to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast for women who want to experience intimate relationships and sex that are pleasurable and passionate, happy, thriving and deeply fulfilling. With my very special guest experts guiding lights and pioneers in their specialist areas, we'll be breaking down the myths, exploring the difficult stuff, the good stuff and seeing what's possible for love, sex and intimacy at this time of rapid change. In these candid and intimate conversations, I'll be bringing you the best of sex and relationship education, full of practical ways to support and inspire change in your intimate life. I'm your host, Sarah Rosebright. Whether you're curious about what's possible or you're already committed to exploring, I'm so happy you are here. Welcome to this conversation with Natalie Liu. Natalie's written her fifth book, The Joy of Saying No, a simple plan to stop people-pleasing, reclaim boundaries, and say yes to the life you want. And that came out earlier this year. As a recovering people-pleaser myself, and I work with so many who describe themselves as people-pleasers, I was really delighted that Natalie had a yes for this conversation. We dived into different aspects of people-pleasing. She defined the five types of people-pleasers that she's seen and talks about why you might people-please and how this shows up in dating and intimate relationships and offers lots of practical information to help you feel more empowered in dating and in creating healthier, intimate relationships. I hope you enjoy. Hi, and today I'm really excited to be joined by Natalie Liu. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. It's an absolute pleasure. And so I'd love to start uh, with you sharing what it is that you do in the world. I am a, what am I? I'm a boundaries and relationship coach who has been uh, educating people about how to have more intimate, loving, healthy relationships and to break the cycle really of emotional unavailability, people pleasing, you know, settling for crumbs for the best part of 18 years, uh, mainly through my website and blog, baggagereclaim.com. And I also had a podcast as well called The Baggage Reclaim Sessions. And so I have been doing this work, as I say, on Baggage Reclaim for about 18 years, but I've actually been writing for, as of last week, about 19 years. Um, And I am very much about really uh, helping people to really give and receive more love, care, trust and respect. That is really at the core of my work. And the only way that we get to do that is by healing the emotional baggage that stops us from being able to do that in the first place. And that causes us really to be involved, for instance, with emotionally unavailable people or to be emotionally unavailable ourselves and to accept less than what we need, desire and deserve. So I've written my fifth book, The Joy of Saying No came out in January of this year through HarperCollins. And I self-published my previous four books, including Mr. Unavailable and the Fallback Girl. And I um, work with people through coaching and through e-courses. And one day, I think I might do that thing I used to do before COVID, which is to do like in-person stuff again. (laughs) Fabulous. Thank you so much. Wow. And this, you know, I've looked at some of your blogs. There's just so much there. And, um, I'd love to hear, before we dive into this, how you got into this work yourself. So I, everything I I write, write about, talk about, 
uh, you know, chair. It's, I learned from the School of Hard Knocks. And so um, before I started baggage reclaim in September 2005, I was consistently involved with emotionally unavailable and sometimes shady uh, men. I struggled with my family relationships, really grappling with the wounds of abandonment and uh, abuse that I'd experienced in, in childhood and as well, actually, in adulthood. I was a quintessential people pleaser and I was also a perfectionist. So I demanded too much of myself. I pushed myself too hard. These things are going to take a toll on you. If you don't, if you're not feeling your feelings, if you don't have healthy boundaries, it's going to show up in your life in some way. And so in my case, aside from what seemed to be a lengthy catalog of unhealthy relationships and pushing myself too hard at work, it was becoming ill with an immune system disease called sarcoidosis. And I think looking back, I would say that because I was so emotionally shut down, it's not really a surprise that my body just sort of went into meltdown. And it was through, I'd been writing a personal blog at the time called Tired of Men and Other Things That Drive a 20-something Around the Twist, which was really just my exploring, why the hell am I doing all of this stuff? Like, why do I say that I, I want to be happy, that I want to be in a loving relationship, but I never choose that guy and I'm always caught in drama. And it was through writing on there and yeah, entertaining people with my stories, but also noticing the patterns that were going on in my own life that I really started, to, I had a bit of an awakening and realized something is really, really off in my life. And I'm the only, I'm the common denominator. So I'm the only person who's been in every act, scene, and moment of my life. doesn't make me responsible for what anybody else is doing. But what it does beg the question of is what, what beliefs, attitudes, choices, habits, feelings, in stories am I bringing into each of those situations that contributes to why I'm in these in the first place? And it was asking these questions out loud talking openly about what I was struggling with that then made me realize that I wasn't alone. I'm not a weirdo mm. because that's what I always thought. I'm a weirdo. I'm unlovable. I'm rejectionable. And then I had a load of people saying, uh, you are just like me. And so I started Baggage Reclaim in September 2005, really as an antidote to a lot of the bullshit that is peddled at women, particularly when you think about the time when I was starting that, like, women's magazines were very, very male driven, as in a woman exists to be in a relationship and to please men. Your sexual pleasure was about pleasing men. The Whether you were going to be in a relationship was about pleasing men. Are you going to get to be married? Are you going to get to have kids? Pleasing men. Work, pleasing men. Every solution to everything was just try harder, please more, put on some sexy lingerie. And I just really objected to that. I was like, why don't we look at what's the reasons behind why we're doing what we're doing? Why are we settling for less? Why are we, um, you know, consistently choosing to be with people who are so different to who we say we want to be with? You know, why are we in so much pain? And how do we stop this? And that is what I've been exploring ever since. Wow, a lot there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot there. So... In these explorations, what are some of the key threads that you've been following? 
Um, so at the, you know, my site is called Baggage Reclaim. And Great I name. came, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I came up with that really was, you know, sort of a planet because we all as humans have emotional baggage. But I think that historically uh, we have had a lot of shame about having emotional baggage. And we've also had some pretty dodgy ideas of what baggage is. So there was a time when we used to actually say that somebody, for instance, a woman having children and, um, and no longer being in that relationship, that the kids were her baggage or that, you know, having been, I don't know, divorced or something or been through a number of breakups or being single in your 40s and 50s or oh, baggage, baggage. But all humans have emotional baggage, the stories, feelings, judgments that we have accumulated as a result of the experiences that we've had in life. And until we confront what we're afraid of confronting and we deal with what we're carrying around and offload a whole load of it as well, it's only then can we actually find that we can be happier, that we can be more of who we really are. I found as well... Other common threads were that we have a habit of, so here's an easy way to describe it. We are all in the habit of playing roles. You know, these sort of jobs, these personas, these functions that we take on within our relationships. And we learn to play those roles in childhood. And while some of us have shed those roles gradually, a lot of us have consciously and unconsciously continued to play those roles. For example, the good girl, the good guy, the uh, the listener, the scapegoat, the overachiever, the underachiever, the black sheep, the problematic one, you know, the helper, the fixer, the savior, the res rescuer, second best, whatever it might be, we had a job within the environment in which we grew up in. And a lot of us have held on to that job and we've made it our identity without realizing that it's not actually who we are. Um, I think other themes in there was obviously the people pleasing that the more work I did, the more exploration I did was the more that I realized like you can trace most issues that we grapple with in this world down to people pleasing and boundaries. Mm. And that actually, if we all just had a little bit more boundaries, like a little bit more healthy boundaries, we'd live in an entirely different world. But of course, we've all been socialized to believe that boundaries are bad and wrong and saying yes is the way to go. And, you know, that led to this other realization that a lot of us think that we are being intimate and that we, you know, we have these close relationships. But if we are afraid of boundaries and we are, for instance, people pleasing and engaging in perfectionism, overgiving, overthinking and over responsibility, we can't truly have intimate relationships at the same time because we're not willing to tell the truth. So that was a, a major eye opener for me. It's like, oh, the less I people please, the more of me I really am, but also the more intimate my relationships. And that's something I think that stays with me every day, for sure. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So you've written this book, The Joy of Saying No, which is about people pleasing. So how do you um, how do you define people pleasing? So people pleasing is really anything we do um, to uh, as a way to we prioritize other people's needs, desires, expectations, feelings and opinions as a way to avoid conflict, criticism, additional stress, disappointment, loss and rejection 
but also to gain attention, affection, approval, love, and validation. So people-pleasing are subtle and also not so subtle things that we do to basically influence and control other people's feelings and behavior so that they will like us or that they certainly won't leave us or do anything bad to us. And it is something that we have been socialized and conditioned into. And I think a lot of people see people pleasing as, oh, it's been a doormat. Or other people see it as a very virtuous quality, like, I'm just such a people pleaser. <laughs> I just can't help it. I'm such a people pleaser. You know, it, it's just who I am. And it's like, no, it's it's a learned habit. It's actually a trauma response, actually, to a large degree. And um, what I, part of the reason why I wrote the book is because I wanted to shed light on really how people pleasing is so pervasive in our society and that it's rife in our behavior. Anything where we're not really being truthful about who we are, we're saying yes when we really mean no, we're saying yes without considering the meaning and consequences, we're saying we're being things because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't do it. It's all people pleasing. Mm. Yeah. And so you say it's a trauma response. Um, so I guess I think of the fawning and and um, which is often used in the sort of trauma world, isn't it? As that mm -hmm. nervous system response. So you shared how it shows up. So for somebody listening who is a people pleaser, and I find sometimes like I didn't even know I was people pleasing because yeah. <laughs> if anyone had told me years ago I was people pleasing, I'd be like, no, no, this is like you say, just who I am. I didn't even know. So for anyone listening, how do you um, guide people to find a different relationship with their boundaries to find it? Yeah. Love to hear about that. So in the book, I talk about the five types of people pleasing, mm. which are gooding, efforting, avoiding, saving and suffering. And the names in and of themselves imply the types of things that we do, that we focus on, uh, our means of, of, of trying to please others. But it also tells us what drives us. So gooding, being good, looking good, you know, giving that, you know, giving the appearance of being good, uh, efforting, we're about effort. So we are somebody who is like, and that would be me, who's very like, I will put in the most amount of effort. I will have to be seen to be doing my best. You know, I've got to give it 100% or 150%. Uh, avoiders are very much about avoiding. That's the way that they please others. I'll just avoid talking about the thing that um, I know I really should talk about. I won't express my needs. I'll just avoid that. I'll avoid conflict at all costs. I'm never going to discomfort anybody. Um, some people, and I think this is where people recognize people pleasing, but also feel uncomfortable with it, is the saving. So the helping, the fixing, the rescuing. And then we're like, but it has good intentions. I only meant the best. I was only trying to help. But actually... When we have that style, we need to be needed. And we use the helping and the rescuing and the fixing to please others. But on some level, we're also hoping that in doing those things for others, that others will also heal those parts of us. And also that if we do those things for others, they won't leave. And, and then last but not least is the suffering. You know, it's a sort of I bleed for you mentality. So it's like, the more you suffer, the better that makes you as a person. And so that means that you will actually try to please others, but just let them do whatever the hell they want to do. And, and then you're like, but I've busted up my boundaries for you 
Why on earth would you want to leave me? What else can I do for you? And I share these because I think that when we're considering like, how do I bring more boundaries into my life? And of course, that can feel quite daunting for a lot of people because boundaries is such a misunderstood term, such a misunderstood concept as such, even though we are the living embodiment of our boundaries. You know, the, the, the best example I give of this is that if somebody comes to me and says, oh, what's your name? And I say, it's Natalie. And they turn around and go, hi, Natty. Hi, Natasha. First of all, I've expressed a boundary when I told you what my name is. And you've now turned around and turned it into something else that I didn't even turn around and say. That's a, a basic boundary. We are the embodiment of our boundaries. Our yes is a boundary as much as our no is. So they're not separate. But I find that a lot of us are like, oh, boundaries are bad. Somebody's going to have an issue with it. They're going to have conflict. But think about of those five styles there, and you may have more than one, like some people can recognize themselves, you know, in all of them, maybe at different stages of their life, or they, like I very strongly identify with efforting, but I know that there's a bit of gooding and avoiding, maybe even a little bit of saving in there. I'm not the suffering, really, that's way back in the distant past, but efforting. I know that that's me because when the doo-doo hits the fan, when things don't go the way that I want them to go, when I think about you know, what I've been to the table, I always go back to effort. Oh, but I, I, I've tried so hard. I gave so much. I put so much. If you're somebody who's in the gooding style, when people let you down, when people don't act the way that you want them to act, when your needs aren't met, the first thing you're probably going to go to, but I, 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 I've been such a good person. I'm a good person. Why don't they like me? I don't get it. And these are the clues about where you can have more boundaries because then you know, well, hold on a second. I think that maybe I focus sometimes too much on trying to be good instead of being who I am. For me, I focus sometimes too much on effort. And that means that aside from being, you know, letting myself be more true to who I am in that moment, that I, I overstep my own boundaries, my limits with that. Somebody who is an avoider, you'll know you are because you probably experience very little if any conflict in your life and I have people say to me I have been with my partner for like 20 years and we've never had an argument that is not a badge of honor mm. because nobody is in agreement all the time and conflict is a marker of intimacy it says I am willing to go there as in go to the place where I reveal a bit more of myself, where I run the risk of, yeah, criticism, of conflict, of you seeing me in a way that maybe isn't what you thought I was, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it's, it's better for the relationship this way. So when we say, oh, I don't fight, you know, I never have a disagreement with anybody. You're a people pleaser. Mm. Like there is people pleasing in there somewhere. And with the helping, it's like, well, why do you have to help all the time? Why do you always have to be the rescuer? Like, let, if anybody wants to have more boundaries, a quick way to it, Stop doing the job that you think that you have in your relationships. Whatever you think your job is, listener, fixer, helper, healer, overachiever, the good one, whatever it is, what would happen if you just cut back on doing that job? Boom, you'd have healthier boundaries in a heartbeat. Mm, yeah, absolutely. But that cutting back is really hard, isn't it? When <laughs> these are the patterns that we identify with and that we're, that we're used to. Yeah. And uh, the, the thing that says people is 
people pleasing is such a part of our lives that no, but it's not realistic to expect that you could listen to this conversation or read my book or read anything and then just leap out of bed tomorrow and be like, well, I'm not a people pleaser anymore. Because actually the best thing that you can do is start to notice how people pleasing shows up in your life. You know, the, the first step I say is getting to know your pleaser. How do you spend your yes, no, and maybe? When people spend a week observing, just observing how they spend that, the typical people pleaser isn't saying no very much. And there's a lot of anxiety in that week. And there's probably a level of overcommitting in there or sitting around thinking, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, how am I going to get out of that or whatever it might be. But you need to observe how it shows up in your life because it might be, you know, I told people, some people are people pleasers right across the board, you know, work up. But some people are like, actually, I've got pretty healthy boundaries at work. It's when I get home that it all falls apart. Or actually, I'm all right at home and, you know, at work, but put me around my family and the wheels come off. But you can't know this if you don't take a closer look at that. And it's not about, like, I call myself a recovering people pleaser. And so I am so much less of a people pleaser than I was almost 18 years ago when I embarked on this work than I was a year ago. But it is a work in process because these are habits, they are patterns that we have carried with us throughout our lives. And it's only through different situations that we're coming up against that we have the opportunity to choose differently, to make a conscious choice. Because people-pleasing is, is driven by these unconscious patterns, by this you know, sort of baggage behind the scenes that we don't even know is coming up. So when we make a more conscious choice, it's like, oh, we're sending a message to the body. Oh, I see. There's a different way to be now. And of course, we might feel very panicky after that because the body likes familiarity. <laughs> it's like, oh, danger. You know, that's why the amygdala suddenly goes berserk. It's like, oh my gosh, what are we doing here? We've got to be afraid. Danger, danger, alert. It's like, no, all I did was say no. Like the place isn't burning down. Armageddon isn't happening. We're okay. Yeah, that could, I've had many women say like they fear the world's going to fall apart if they say no, and um, <laughs> <laughs> literally. So for somebody who is listening that wants to start to make some more conscious choices, um, mm -hmm. how, how might they start to go about it? So there's the observing piece first and there's mm -hmm. the identifying the sort of, I love the, that you've got these five types of pleasers because that's, mm -hmm. I can imagine, really helpful for people to see the patterns at that in that way. What else do you say uh, are great steps for people to explore? So quick roots into this is noticing what I call the people pleaser feelings, which are anxiety, guilt, resentment, overwhelm, feeling overloaded, burdened, trapped, helpless, powerless, uh, low, depressed. Well, these are all notifications from your body letting you know that you have either said yes to something for the wrong reasons, aka people pleasing, or the way, even if you're actually okay with doing the thing and you and it wasn't a problem necessarily for you to do the thing, the way in which you're going about it is breaching your boundaries. Hence, that's where the people-pleasing is coming in. Noticing where those people-pleaser feelings show up can be 
a real game changer for people because it becomes an opening to noticing, oh, wow, I don't realize how much anxiety I had around this particular person or around this particular situation. Or it's like, oh, that's interesting that I've got like this real guilt or, woo, this person, like I'm seething around them, I'm fuming, noticing that. Now, of course, a lot of people pleasers are out of touch with their feelings because it's impossible to be, you know, let's say if you're at the, the high end of it, a chronic people pleaser as such, and also be feeling your feelings at the same time because people pleasing shuts off your feelings because you're in that sort of pattern. So the other thing to notice is the thoughts. It's another quick route in. So you always know you're people pleasing if, you know, one of the calling cards of a people pleaser is, you know, when people piss you off, life has let you down, whatever it is, you either say it to the person or you think it after everything I've done for you or for, or for this, but after everything I've done, calling card of the people pleaser. But it's also, let's say somebody's asked you to do something and you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. No problem. Outwardly, inwardly, you're like, what the beep, beep, beep. How the hell are they asking me to do this? Don't they realize how busy I am? The audacity of this person. I can't believe this. Or where you're asked to do something, you're like, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. And then in your head, you're going, how am I going to get out of this? Like, okay, do you know what? I just have to make sure that I let them know that they can't do that. How am I going to palm this off? It could also be that maybe somebody asks you to do something. Um, you know, maybe you're invited to something, free work, an event, or whatever it is, and you're going, well, if I say no, then maybe they're going to start saying things about me and people will be saying this and people will think that about me. All of these types of thoughts are letting you know that if you were to say yes, based on whatever your thought process is at that time, you'd be people pleasing. You would be saying yes for the wrong reasons. You'd be doing it because you're trying to influence and control something else because you're trying to avoid being perceived a certain way because, you know, it's like, well, I'm trying to avoid conflict criticism. So you would not be making a decision that's in your best interest. And the thing is, is that once you can start to notice, if you can't notice the feelings, notice the thoughts. Once you start to notice these, this is where you can very quickly pick up on the people pleasing. And you can also pick up on not just where maybe your boundaries are, you know, not quite there, but also the opportunity to have even a slightly better boundary. It's not about having a perfect boundary, a perfect response. It's an opportunity to listen to yourself and try to do something that is a bit more authentic in that moment. And another quick way into that is if you're somebody who tends to kind of say yes on, you know, on the hoof without really thinking too much about it, can you do yeah. But before you've even really got the details, like, yeah, yeah, sure, no problem. And then you open up your diary and go, uh-oh, like, how on earth did I end up like taking that on? I've got too much going on. You are the person who needs to make an agreement with yourself that from that for now, until you've got into a better place with this, that you don't agree to something until you've had a chance to check in with yourself. And so it's let me get back to you. Check your diary check your bandwidth. Like, do I actually have the capacity to do this? What have I got going on? Even if it's not sit on, sitting in your diary, because nobody itemizes out every last thing that they've got to do each day, or most people don't, I would say. So it's like, think about like, okay, this person's asked me to do this thing in a couple of days. What have I got going on now? Will I have the headspace for that? What's my energy levels? What are the demands on me at the moment? What have I got coming up at the weekend next week? 
thinking about you, because if you're not factoring you into your choices and you tend to orient yourself to thinking about everybody else, that is people pleasing. And sometimes we don't call it people pleasing, we call it motherhood, <laughs> being a woman, being, you know, wife, partner, being a worker. But actually, this lack of consideration for ourselves is, is not, it's not the blueprint of how the, the, those, those aspects of our life have to be. Absolutely, absolutely. I was talking to somebody who they they in their work situation, they was in overwhelm and stress, just saying yes to everything. And their work got a coach in to help them because they were in, in the public sector. And what they realized is they were saying like yes to everything. People would come through the door because they were like an assistant head teacher. Can you do this? Can you do that? But they never checked anything because that was the habit they got into. And when they started to check, it was like, what do you actually need from me? And it might have been, they just needed five minutes to talk something through, yet this person was taking on project after project because they weren't clarifying or all these things. Yeah, it's like you wanted to be seen as this really like helpful person, this really yeah. supportive person. But you've highlighted something there that I think a lot of people get a shock about, which is that when you're people-pleasing, it can actually interfere with the quality of your work, but also your leadership skills and even the trajectory of your career. Because you can find yourself getting, if you're saying yes all the time, you will get distracted from things that are a greater priority. I've come across so many people, please, who are like, yeah, 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 yeah. And next thing you know, they're spending their, their week doing somebody else's work. And it's that, that clarification that's important. Like, how are you saying yes to something without knowing what the details are or something that, that's so automated that it says that you didn't even consider yourself it's like you see it as your job to say yes but actually for instance as this assistant head teacher they would do far better to be discerning with their yes and to ask more questions because that will lead to them for instance if they want to be actually being the head teacher hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely so any other sort of key things you'd love to share to people listening that may be people pleasers that you've gleaned from your two decades nearly of exploring and studying this? So I think that um, something I find interesting about us as humans, but particularly as people pleasers, is that we will say, well, I don't have a problem with other people's boundaries. You know, I'm really, really respectful of other people's boundaries. But if you don't feel comfortable saying no. And you feel wounded when others turn around and say no to you, you have a problem with boundaries. And that means that there's definitely people pleasing in there. It is impossible to feel uncomfortable about yourself having boundaries and not also have a problem with other people having boundaries. And I think that this is important to recognize that we don't kid ourselves here, not to give ourselves a hard time about it, but to be I think it brings us to a bit more of an honest place in our relationship. It's also like asking ourselves, you know, one of the things I found really helpful over the years is, am I, am I saying yes to this because I want to? Or am I saying yes because I'm trying to avoid something else? And it's interesting when you really poke at that, that sometimes we can call it something else we're like well I'm just saying yeah because it's like the easy thing to do to keep the peace but that's not an honest yes it's not an authentic yes um I think as well 
you know, I liken people pleasing to creating a debt and then asking other people to pay it off. And when I say to people that whether we are aware of it or not, people pleasing can be a bit manipulative. And that's for a lot of us. And understandably so, we feel very uncomfortable with that. We would hate to think that anybody would feel manipulated by us. But when we also think back on some of our more uncomfortable relationships, we realize, oh, well, the reason why I wasn't bringing up the thing that I should have brought up is because I thought to myself, well, if I don't bring this up, when I then choose to bring something up, they're going to give me a pass because I gave them a pass before. That's manipulative. And, you know, a good example of this is I remember you know, talking with somebody years ago and they had been in, we call it a barely there relationship that she was hoping it would turn into something more committed. And there was transgression after transgression after transgression. One day she finally erupted, like unleashed on him. And he was like, oh, and it all came pouring out. But when we talked it through, and I think that this is common for a lot of people pleasers. She realized that part of the reason why she hadn't said anything at those earlier points is because her marker of where she feels like it's okay for her to ask for what she needs or even demand it, where she feels it's okay for her to voice a concern or voice her upset about something, is she, it's almost like she has to, she has to collect up a load of injustices from the other wow. party. It's like building up the credits yeah. to unleash. And I think a lot of us, if we're honest with ourselves, we've done that in a relationship or few. And what I say to people actually is that, you know, those moments in life where you unleash on someone and, and many a people pleaser has already had that moment where they've just tipped over the edge and it's just all erupted out of them they've unleashed and I say to them that the, the often what happens is that when a people pleaser does that they feel ashamed afterwards it's like oh my god this is why I never speak up this is why I don't have boundaries because look at how it comes out mm. important to hear what I'm about to say next the reason why you erupted like that is because of all the suppressed and repressed emotions the the, the needs you know your wants expectations your opinions Suppressing and repressing yourself is like, you know, leaving a, a pressure cooker on and, and not turning it off. You explode at some point or you implode. So you break down or you burn out or, you know, you end up having some sort of illness. And that is because you, your body can only take so much. And so the eruption or the imploding is your body's way of finally letting you know you have put up with too much and it is time for you to start saying no. And this has been, it's one of these sort of revelations that sort of has kept giving over the years because now I realize that in situations where I'm feeling any of those things, where I start to feel like a bit over any of those people pleaser feelings I talked about, but also when it just feels like everything kind of just goes up, you know, in the air, I'm like, oh, what do I need to start saying no to? That's the first thing I've now learned to start asking myself. Don't give yourself a hard time about the fact that you're, you've erupted or imploded. It's like a watershed moment in your life asking you to stop 
people pleasing. Yeah, yeah, I can relate personally to a lot of what you've shared then. Absolutely, absolutely. And so you're talking about how it sort of, um, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you was around that being comfortable saying no and also hearing no and how that shows up for a lot of women in dating mm. um, because many women I've spoken to over the years go out trying to be the best they can for this person if they're dating it doesn't matter what gender they're dating trying to mm -hmm. be the best for this person and their needs are not in the picture Mm -hmm. And so worried about saying being receiving a rejection and that being such a, um, a, a uncomfortable place. So I, I know everything that you've shared is relevant for, 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 for this, but I'd love to hear your wisdom around this for anyone listening. I mean, the whole what we've all been socialized and conditioned to see as dating, you know, in the pursuit of a romantic relationship is like people pleasing 101. Because we, the world has basically said, position yourself to be whatever you think the other party wants and go hard at that. And eventually that will person will choose you to be in a relationship and with any luck, they will want to commit. And then they might talk about engagement and getting married and then they, they might want to have children with you. And so there was this idea that dating is about finding somebody who is pleased enough with you who has deemed you to be good enough for a relationship, for engagement, for future, for a commitment. And unfortunately, that sets a lot of us up for a fall if we buy into that, because we then enter into dating from a place of anxiety, but also from this place of this person has power over me and they have something that I want and that I want to get from them. And there is then, instead of going into dating, showing up as an equal, showing up as ourselves. And, you know, I see dating as a discovery phase. It is an opportunity for you to get an initial sort of sense of who this person is and what they are about to get enough of a vibe, depending on what it is that you're looking for. But let's say you're looking to be in some form of committed relationship, whatever form that might take, to get a sense of whether you want to actually get to know this person further. And it's also about getting a sense of how we are around that person. So just like when you go uh, uh, for a job interview, it's actually a co-interview process. You're not going to the job and you're only asking them about what their job is on offer. You want to know about the company. You want to know about it. You're getting a feel of whether it's right for you as much as whether you're a right fit for them. A lot of people don't do this with dating. They think it's like the X factor or something where you are auditioning and this person is, is king or queen and they get to judge you and pick you to take you through to, to the, the subsequent rounds. And that means that you don't care enough about whether you, you even share core values. You don't care enough about boundaries. And so people are making dodgy choices in those early stages because they're pretending to be something that they're not. And once you've pretended to be something that you're not, you're on shaky ground anyway, because you're anxious that this person is going to ditch you as soon as they figure out something isn't quite right, that they decided there's something rejectionable about you. And then you feel even more angry because it's like, well, hold on a second. I... I tried to be what I thought the person wanted and they still don't want to date me. So that means that I can't be who I am and I can't be who I pretended to be. So what am I supposed to do with myself now? But the answer to dating, as hard as some people will take this to hear it, 
is to be yourself and nothing but yourself. I get it in the early stages, we wear our best knickers and, you know, we're, you know, we're, we're giving our best jokes and talking it up. You know, Chris Rock says that, um, I paraphrase here, but he says, uh, when you first meet somebody, you know, we're dating, you're not meeting them, you're meeting their representative. <laughs> and, I, and I do think that that's true, but totally. <laughs> you have to loosen up and be yourself. And I think that if you enter into dating from an anxious place and you're basically pretending to be something that you're not, it contributes to why you experience the, uh, the issues that you do in dating, because you're buying into this idea that you can't date and also be yourself at the same time, which sets you up for a fall. Absolutely. And I know you write a bit about, look, I noticed you write quite a lot about sort of um, women in dating and, and accepting the crumbs. So yeah. I'd love you to speak to that. Well, it's just this idea that you just can't take anything that's on offer. And it's like, oh, well, um, I know you're not feeling it the way that I'm feeling it, but I'll just, uh, uh, some crumbs are better than no crumbs. Uh, no crumbs are crumbs, whichever way you slice them. You know, the only people who like crumbs are ants. And we're just not cut out for that in a relationship. Like a relationship has to be mutual. But I think that women are socialized differently differently from men and, and i know that the some people will will go oh, that but actually when you when you consider patriarchy and and capitalism and ageism and sexism and all the isms women are coming out in a very dodgy pace there's a what's the, there's a book it's called down girl by kate somebody and she talks about how women are are basically socialized to be like the givers I'm, I'm paraphrasing here and then and then men are socialized to be the takers and we're not supposed to complain about giving um but when we think about all the other things that've been socialized it really like I'm I'm 45 approaching 46 I'm old enough to remember when people still referred to unmarried women as spinsters when children who were not the you know the the children of married parents parents were called bastards and when there and there still is there's pressure to settle down by a certain point and that you were judged for not doing that and that still I think for a lot of people is really embedded a lot of women is embedded in their psyche and so what you find is that people are operating based on programming not preference and that means that even if actually they're pretty happy in themselves, they are programmed, women are programmed to start to be anxious about their fertility and about relationships, even if they don't even want to have a child, even if they have no interest whatsoever in being in a relationship right now, or they don't actually want to get married because of how we're programmed. It's like, oh my God, I'm in my 30s. I should want to care about those things. I should seek those things out. It's why we settle for crowns because how we're socialized it's not based on now, it's based on the past. And when we think about the messages that we received about what it was to be a girl and then to be a woman and what our value was in terms of you know, relationships and about how a lot of it was, you need to be in a relationship in order to be seen as valuable. You can see why we're selling for crumbs, especially since there's also this kind of pervasive idea as well that the older you get as a woman, the less options you have. And so you do find that with each decade or half decade that goes by, you'll see women settle for less and less if they are still out in the dating pool. 
I love what you shared there, programs, uh, preferences and programs. And, and, and I've had many women over the years, like, is it okay to want this? <laughs> Whether yes. it's to, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, so, so one of the things that I get asked about frequently is because few of us have had good role models of healthy relationships. And, you know, and often women say to me, how do I know if this is a healthy relationship or I haven't had one? What does that look like? So from your um, your inquiry, what do you feel are the hallmarks of uh, a healthy relationship? And that be, that might be in it might be dating. It might be a relationship. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Uh, well, this is, you know, I'm a big lover of, of frameworks and I've come up with a lot of uh, sort of not terms, but I guess ways of breaking down stuff like this, because I found that a lot of people were asking this. Mm-hmm. And so funny enough, I talk about the landmarks of healthy relationships and you'll find that that really is the same for any type of relationship. But I think it's particularly important for romantic relationships, given the way in which we invest into those and sort of in some respects, depending on the type of relationship, try to merge our lives with the other person. And so the landmarks of relationship of healthy relationships are balance, consistency, commitment, intimacy, and progression. Combine these, with, well, when you have these, you know that you are in a relationship where you share similar core values and your emotional needs are being met. And the reason why I talked about these being the landmarks is because where you have one, you have the others, but also a lot of people focus on what I call the hallmarks of a relationship or what they see as the hallmarks, which for instance, over the years have been, well, we went to Ikea, they introduced me to their parents, they introduced me to their friends, Um, you know, we moved in together, they said, you know, I love you, but when you look at the content of the relationship and how you feel in that. The relationship needs balance, commitment, consistency, progression, and intimacy. Because when the relationship is balanced, you know that it's mutual. It's not about, you're not sitting there literally measuring it out by degrees and trying to work out exactly where each person is on the seesaw. But when you're in a healthy relationship, it feels balanced in nature. It does not feel like a roller coaster and destabilizing. Commitment, I want to be clear, when I say commitment, I'm not saying that it has to be, you know, the stereotypical marriage or even like, oh, well, we, it has to be just me and you forever and evermore. Whatever your form of commitment is, work that out with yourselves. But if you can't commit to what your relationship is and to each other in whatever form that will take, I'm sorry, but you're going to struggle with all the other things because you a relationship like one of the things I say to people is dating is very different from a relationship people go I don't understand why it's so different you know we was getting on so great when we dated and now we're in a relationship and it's like well why do these things matter now why are we having these problems uh because we don't have any skin in the game when we're dating there isn't any commitment there commitment shows you who people are and some people can't commit some people can't commit to whatever it is and some people actually they show consistently as they are and you need to be able to trust that whatever you both agreed to, you can both show up for that. You also need to trust that who the person has portrayed themselves to be and who you've interpreted them at is what keeps coming back at you day after day after day. You don't want that you don't know who you're going to be dealing with from one day, one week to the next. And our relationships need intimacy. And intimacy means that we need to have boundaries. Like no boundaries, no intimacy. 
We need to know that we can go there in our relationships. We need to know that we can reveal ourselves as, as time goes on, that the, that the relationship is deepening. And the relationship needs to progress. Like you always know that you don't have the landmarks if your relationship, honestly, it feels like you're on a permanent date or it's, it's, it's gone into reverse. So it's going in fits and starts. That's when you know that the relationship is not healthy. And so I've talked about like the landmarks of relation, of healthy relationships. And I've also talked about the four qualities of a loving partner as well, which is that they are emotionally available. They have commitment to self as in like they have a sense of who they are. They don't have to perfectly know who they are, but they are committed to being themselves. Um, they also need to have that sort of combination of integrity, maturity, and responsibility. Because how are you going to be in a relationship with somebody who doesn't have those things? That they won't have the integrity to follow through on who they are and what you've both agreed to in the relationship. So you won't have the trust. And then it's also a positive outlook now when I say a positive outlook I don't mean it's like my little pony's land you know hearts and flowers all the time but if you're in a relationship with somebody who's like I just don't believe in relationships I just don't believe in love all relationships fail just can't trust anybody I'm sorry what the hell are you doing in a relationship with that person because they don't see a future with you and you need to be with somebody who can see possibilities with you it just doesn't see danger and negativity so there has to be that positive outlook otherwise the person is always guarded and i find that whether you whether you focus on those four qualities or whether you focus on the landmarks if you notice those things in your relationship you'll figure out who's right for you and who isn't yeah beautiful i'll put those I'll put some links to some of the blogs that you've done around that in the show notes as well, because I'm sure people would love to dive in and read some more. So um, so I'm conscious of time. And, and one of the things that um, I have a lot of women in the perimenopausal menopausal phase listening to this podcast, and you mentioned about your uh, in one of your blogs about your work changing at this time. So I'd just love if you'd be willing to share a little bit about your your journey and the transition you're in with this, because it can be such a profound change of time for so many women. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think I mentioned earlier, like I'm 45, past approaching 46. And I've had to acknowledge that I am not the person I was in my early 40s, my 30s, my 20s, teen. In a way, I kind of feel like I'm still like this sort of teenager raving in the discos in Dublin, you know, where I was brought up. But the reality is I'm 45 and I'm tired. And I have realized, like a lot of us do, that, you know, perimenopause and menopause, I think, uh, force us to really confront our relationship with ourselves and to go into a deeper relationship with us. They force us to figure out our yeses and nos because we, we have spent our lives up until this point being all things to all people or certainly a number of things to a number of people and because of what we experience as a result of these we have to pay more attention to ourselves because the body literally makes you do it and so I have found that you know at the start of our conversation I said you know I used to be I really overdid it at work and I was quite a perfectionist and you know I'm a recovering perfectionist and recovering people pleaser I honestly don't know how I did it, um, but I don't have that stamina anymore. And my 40s have been a revelation in learning that, yes, Natalie, you can demand 
a lot from your body and your body will go, okay, fine, we'll get, we'll get this job done, but I pay for it and I pay for it really hard. I've had burnout. I, you know, I've struggled with tinnitus. I felt, you know, low, but I've also gone through periods of just feeling like, what the hell am I doing with myself? And I think it's because as I started to realize my limits, I was like, there was something about the way that you approach work, which of course is entangled with your people pleasing and perfectionism, because these are habits that you learned much earlier in life that just isn't sitting well anymore. And so I made the decision at the start of the year to give myself the space to reevaluate that you know, you try sometimes to do that while you're also doing things. And that can be tricky. And I've been in a cycle of making a weekly podcast for almost eight years. And I mean, okay, I took breaks in the summer and at Christmas and stuff like that. So it wasn't like literally 52 weeks, but I have been such producing content for at that point, 17 and a half years for baggage reclaim. And then I had a personal blog before that. So yeah, you know, 18 and a half years. And I made the decision at the start of the year to stop the podcast. And that was a huge decision. It was mm. 278 episodes that had almost three and a half million downloads. People were shocked. They were like, oh my God, oh my God. But I, I had to choose myself uh, because I think that there are always more things that we can do. And what I mean by this is I found myself asking the question, well, how many more episodes are you going to make of this thing? Like, where, where does it stop? Because it felt like you could just keep going on and on. But I found myself going, actually, there is an end in sight for this. And you can always come up with more things to do and more things that people need you for. But what about what you need yourself for and I felt like my body was asking me to eliminate some things out of my schedule to give myself breathing room I had the book coming out um you know I, I then not long after my book came out I went through an estrangement with my mother where I just had to make the decision to step back and to cut off it turned out to be very fortuitous that I'd already made that decision to step back from certain elements of my work and it was scary um, but it's also been liberating. I just need some space to breathe out and not to be always serving, serving, serving. Bear in mind, I've, I don't know, there's 600, 1600 or so blog posts, you know, 270 something podcast episodes, goodness knows how many newsletters, stuff on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know, things I've made behind the scenes, e-courses, books. I'm good. I've, I've, I've done a lot of things, I've, you know, yes, I'm still going to make things. Baggage reclaim isn't going anywhere. And, and if anything, I'll make what I've put there even more accessible in terms of like just making it easy to find, you know, the, the jewels, the content, what you need on there. But I was also, Natalie, you don't have to be constantly making stuff. Like let the things you've already made speak for themselves. And But I'm also like, my bandwidth is not the same as it used to be. And I need to take care of myself at this time and give myself time to figure out who I am at this phase of my life and what it is that I need. And I think it's hard to do that sometimes when you're already juggling a million and one things. I think if you can drop even one or two things out of that, it can make it slightly easier. Yeah. I remember someone saying to me once, menopause, it's me, no pause. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Absolutely love that. That'll stick with me. <laughs> totally. And like you say, it might be, you know, because I know many women at this age are caring for older parents or got younger children and things. And there's a, and it, it might just be creating those little bit of spaces mm. because we might not have the capacity to create more than that, but it is just creating that time and it feels. So thank you for sharing your 
story on that because I know women find it really just inspiring to hear how other people are going through this process and what it's calling of you yeah absolutely I think it is that whole like listening to your body and listening to yourself which can feel really hard but maybe the thing you always do is listen to your co-workers or to your partner or to your children or to extended family and actually there's room for you too in the mix you're not it's not about you being more important it's as important as all of these other people may put you on the same level your needs your desires your expectations feelings and opinions they all matter too and it's a journey and it's an evolution like you know I, I'm doing this work all these years I'm still a recovering people pleaser there's still things to uncover and it's been it's been really interesting to notice how so much of my identity is in pushing and striving and being busy 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 helping this this that but and I'm like, enough. Like, it's time to be something different. Totally. I can so relate. It's like your body shifts from a, a different operating system because I'm 50 this summer. And like what I could do in my early 40s to this now is just so different. And um, yeah. having to let go of just my body just can't do what it used to do. And, and like you say, the identity shifts that come with it, it's 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 work. So yeah, it's frustrating. Like I was on a dance floor a few days ago. So I loved to dance. Yeah. And, you know, I feel like a 90s raver at heart. Well, I am a 90s raver, <laughs> I just call myself. And when I'm on this dance, I'm on the dance floor and it's like, I can start playing some jungle tunes or something. And I, I was transported back to being a teen again. I start dancing and then I could feel myself. I was getting so hot. <laughs> I could start feeling, edging the walls sort of being out of breath. And I was like, geez, like how did you used to go like, uh, raving but my body my body is different my hormones are different like I'm on HRT at 45 approaching 46 something I never thought I would be because when I was growing up HRT was for our ones like people who we yeah. thought were like and so and like here I am at like 45 approaching 46 I'm on HRT never saw that one coming but clearly really really needed it but it's it's that like I had to shift my identity then oh I'm going to be somebody who's on HRT because when she said, oh, yeah, yeah, you need the HRT. Suddenly I went into a panic. I was like, wait, what? And I was thinking, but Natalie, what did you think was going to happen when you kept, you know, chasing them down about your perimenopausal symptoms? You were going to get some help for it. So, yeah, it's it's the identity shifts. And, in, in, you know, my, my kids are 14 and 16 now. One's just done doing, finishing up her GCSEs. Life is shifting. My identity is shifting and we need to allow that and not be too rigid about ourselves. Like we are more than we've probably dreamed up for ourselves so far. Yeah. And have space for that. Thank you mm. so much. Thank you so, so much. And so I'll share the show notes, all your books as well, including your recent book, The Joy of Saying No. And where can people find you online? What's your, I'll put everything in the show notes, but what's the best place for people to visit you? The social media wise, it will be Instagram. I'm at Nat Lou, N-A-T-L-U-E on there. Um, and then I've got like baggagereclaim.com, which has got like a wealth of resources. And I also have my own website, natalielu.com. I'm a busy person. I've got even, even got a Substack as well, uh, natalielu.substack.com, which where I write a newsletter about like unknowing yourself, because I think a lot of us are still figuring out like, who the hell are we? You know, what do I want to be when I grow up? You know, type of thing. So yeah, that's where you can find me. I so appreciate our conversation. Oh, likewise. Thank you so, so much. I really look forward to sharing this with the world.
Thank you for listening to the Love, Sex and Intimacy podcast with me, Sarah Rose Bright. I support women and couples across the globe to truly enjoy sex and pleasure and to create or deepen intimate relationships that are passionate and purposeful, happy and healthy, and I'd love to support you. You can book a complimentary call via my website at sarahrosebright.com to find out if my approach is right for you. And check out my website for information about my one-to-one coaching programs and any current workshops, group programs and retreats that I'm running. Wherever and whenever you are listening, wishing you a beautiful day.